We would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land we have recorded this podcast on, the Wajuk people of the Noongar Nation. We pay our respects to the elders, past and present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people on the lands which Deepherd operates. Welcome back to the Grains Combo Podcast, brought to you by the Department of Primary Industries and Regional Development in Western Australia. I'm Cindy Webster. And I'm Jeanette Pratt, and we are research scientists based in regional WA. These episodes shine a spotlight on the knowledge and tools developed by Deeper to grow the grains industry. In today's episode, I'm talking with Deeper research scientist Paul Finlater and Bindi Isbista, about past and present research that Deepherd is conducting on preventing soil erosion due to wind. Welcome to the podcast, Paul and Mindy. Hi, Cindy. Thanks for having us along today. Thank you. Before we start the podcast, we do want to get to know you both a bit better. How about we start with you, Paul? Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your Deepherd work background? Yes, um, I've actually been working on and off on, in wind erosion in WA since about 1985. So I came over to WA to work on wind erosion and worked exclusively on wind erosion up until about 1996 and then have been working on and off in that area and other soils-related issues since then. And how about you, Bindi? Yeah, Cindy, I first started with the department back in 2001 and I'm a research scientist working on soil amelioration and soil management. So I've particularly worked in the fields of managing soil compaction and controlled traffic farming and um, using precision ag technologies. But in the last sort of eight years, I've been working on um, soil amelioration, GRDC-funded projects, looking at different ways that we can manage soil constraints in WA. And Paul, talking about soil constraints, can you tell us a bit about wind erosion and why are some areas of WA prone to risk of erosion? Well, if we go back a a step or two, the the things leading to wind erosion are, first of all, you've got to have strong winds and WA often has very strong winds, more so nearer the coast, but uh, you can get strong winds further inland. The second thing is that you've got to have uh, the soils have got to be exposed. So if you've got vegetative matter on the on the soil surface, uh, that that will prevent wind erosion. So our farming systems uh, often result in that vegetative matter uh, stubble, usually at the start of the year, being removed to allow uh, seeding and other. Agricultural practices, so the soils become exposed, so they're at risk. The third thing is the soils have to be uh, loose and uh, in a size range suitable for wind erosion. So that's usually from about 50 microns, which is sort of fine sand, up to um, about cuts off at around 200 microns or two millimeter size sand grain so in in that sort of size range the uh, wind erosion will occur now wa has a lot of soils that are sandy and in that size range so when you've got strong winds they've left them exposed and they're on the sandy soils they will blow but other soils heavier soils will blow if they're being cultivated and the particles after cultivation are in that sort of size range at risk from wind erosion. So WA particularly, you know, 
if you live and work in WA, you'll know that there's a lot of sandy soils in WA. And, Paul, how has wind erosion impacted farming over the years? Uh, well, it, it's probably changed. I, I was speaking to uh, Bindi earlier uh, before we started the podcast, about before I arrived in 85, uh, in the late 70s or up till the late 70s, the farming system used to rely on cultivation to control weeds. So they used to cultivate the soil uh, maybe eight or nine times, and that used to that led to significant wind erosion problems. In fact, the Soil and Land Conservation Act was um, first came about. In, I think it was in the 1930s as a result of wind erosion, and it was called the Sand Drift Act. So it's been around a long time. The issue, but around the the uh, late 70s, early 80s, uh, herbicides came into the scene. And people had long known that they'd been able to control wind erosion if they retained the vegetative matter on the surface, but they didn't have any way of controlling the weeds. Herbicides allowed them to do that. And then through other practices such as no-till and minimum tillage and that that came emerged in the, in the late 80s and early 90s, people left more uh, stubble on the surface at the start of the growing season, so that, that managed wind erosion. And uh, I think there was a greater awareness of what people could do. So it wasn't just in the cropping system, but also in the grazing system. People were more aware of it. And um, in the 2000s, with, um, uh, with the changing climate and the drying climate, uh, early sowing became an option to try and keep up to pace with the weeds. So people had to cultivate earlier and this has led to people leaving their soils exposed and particularly coupled with new advances in soil, I'll call it engineering renovation techniques, uh, which sometimes leave the soil exposed. So that's led to a a re-emergence of the issue that had probably uh, subsided for a while and Bindi's been working in this area for some time, so she might like to say a few words on that. So, Paul, what research did you do earlier on with Deep Herd to address this issue? We were initially looked at the amount of plant residues you need to control wind erosion. In the early 1980s, a guy called Brian Marsh that worked with the Depart- then Department of Agriculture developed a, a portable wind tunnel, which we could uh, move around in the field and actually place over over stubble in in an agricultural situation and measure and blow winds up to 90 kilometres an hour down this wind tunnel so we could look at what speeds uh, wind erosion starts on actual paddocks, not just in a um, a laboratory setting. And uh, then we looked at the amount of stubble uh, that was required to control a wind erosion when it was all knocked over because earlier on we had a lot of sheep in the system so usually the stubbles were grazed and all knocked over so I published papers on how much stubble you need to control wind erosion uh, when they're all knocked over and we also had uh, research work done by um, uh, the lead researcher at the time was a guy called Dan Carter, Dr. Dan Carter, and uh, we also looked at how much stubble you need when it's all standing up. So they were the main efforts, but we also looked at um, research into uh, pastures and how much uh, pastures of various types you need to control wind erosion under grazing situations. 
we developed a lot of instrumentation. Uh, this is a bit more technical around uh, parameters to uh, measure the wind erosion. It's, um, if you're measuring something like this, you've got to have a, a measure. Like if you want to measure the length of something, you have a, a standardised metre, which is based on the, the wavelength of light. Um, so with the wind tunnel, we had to try and make sure that our measurement system or we were working towards making sure our measurement system was um, standardised so we knew the strength of the wind uh, or the forces of the wind on the soil surface. So we developed a turbulence probe which measures the force of the wind on the soil surface and being the aim is to relate all our wind tunnel measurements back to what happens in the atmosphere because there's some interesting uh, technical things with scaling um, the wind tunnel heights was about a metre, whereas the atmosphere goes up to tens of metres. Um, so the relationship between the transfer of forces in the atmosphere compared to the wind tunnel can be different. So uh, our work was also focused on that. So we worked closely with uh, people at uh, CSIRO, uh, Mike Rawpat, and uh, Dr. Yarving Shao, who's now in Cologne in um, Germany, and uh, guys in Murdoch. So we had quite a, a big network in Australia working on wind erosion in the late 80s, early 90s. And WA probably initiated or did initiate that bit of work from the early 80s with Brian Marsh and uh, building this portable wind tunnel. So quite a big effort was going into wind erosion research. Wow, that does sound like a huge amount of research. And wind erosion has come back into the conversation in recent years. Bindi, what changes have been happening in farming systems to get it back on the radar? Yeah, Cindy, I think we've had a bit of a generational change as well in the first instance that a lot of farmers now today, it was their dads and um, or grandfathers perhaps that were involved in some of that original wind erosion work and the shift to no-till. So the farmers now, you know, have been working with no-till farming systems that have managed to manage the wind erosion and um, also changed their livestock practices as well. There used to be a lot more livestock up here in Geraldton and um, that was one of the ways they reduced that risk on the sand was to reduce livestock numbers, I think. So there's that generational change that has come in. Um, we've also changed, like Paul mentioned, dry seeding. So we've had, you know, quite a few drier seasons in the last 10 years and that's brought about dry, drier seeding. So putting the crop in early, we found really good benefits for getting a crop. So it's in the ground before it rains and gets ahead of the time. And with that, we've also had, um, you know, some of the changes that have happened with no-till that, because um, WA was, has been leaders in no-till adoption around the world, really. We've seen after 20 to 30 years of no-till, we've had increasing issues with um, nutrient stratification in the soil and also increasing issues with herbicide resistance. So some of those earlier herbicides that were fundamental to um, the adoption of no-till have start, we've started to see an increasing um, herbicide resistance. So the actual um, agronomy has changed a little bit as well and some of the herbicides we're now using need a little bit of that soil incorporation. So perhaps there's not quite as much of that no-till per se, it's probably a little bit more minimum till. And there's a couple of other things that have happened as well with the um, adoption of auto steer GPS systems and we've changed the way we work paddock so it's now largely up and back. And predominantly up here in the north, it's been in that north-south um, direction. 
So I guess that's less, you know, paddock layouts have changed and fence lines have been merged and paddocks have been tidied up. So it's changed the landscape, I guess, in in, um, how we operate as well. And then, of course, like Paul mentioned, there's the uh, removal of soil constraints and an increase um, in soil amelioration work, which is the projects that um, we've been largely involved in with DPIRT and GRDC-funded re-engineering soils projects. So to overcome compaction and non-wetting, there's been an increase in, um, I guess, deep tillage or cultivation, so one deep ripping down to 50 centimetres, which actually doesn't per se remove a lot of the stubble cover unless they tow a big roller behind the back that can flatten the stubble. But um, deep ripping tends to be done in the summer months now, particularly if we've had summer rain. So there are some tools and implements that can be put on that to mix the soil, bring up some of the clay or incorporate lime. And I guess that does increase the risk of erosion. And the other one, of course, is like soil inversion to improve or remove non-wetting soils, which the water repellency has increased um, with no-till over time. And I guess soil inversion is the one where it flips the soil right over and it does leave that, particularly up here, the sandy, that sandy soil exposed to erosion so those kind of practices I guess have have increased the risk but it's almost a change in like that whole sort of farming system that's happened. I I just like to also comment on some things Mindy said with the change in farming systems the farms and the paddock layouts have got have changed but they've also got bigger the machinery's got bigger a lot of farmers have removed tree shelter belts that their fathers or grandfathers had put in to allow their bigger machinery to operate. So it's really been a whole a whole change, you know, to try and make the farms economic. There are always positives and negatives to any uh, change in practice. So it's not that people have, have not been aware of these things, but, you know, they've still got to make, make money and grow crops and, and all those sort of things. And so, Paul, what are the strategies for managing wind erosion? Well, the main one is to keep the stubble there. There's actually three. It's one is to keep the stubble on the ground. The second one is to keep the stubble on the ground. And the third one is to keep the stubble on the ground. (laughs) (laughs) People, you know, I've heard over the years, oh, if we do this to the soils and this soil's not as erodible as that soil and that, all the soils are erodible if they're disturbed and put in that size range that I was talking about earlier. They will blow, you know. So if the, if, if the ground cover's removed, uh, they will blow. Now, you know, things like tree shelter belts and that help, they're, they're only effective out to a certain distance, like 10, 20 times the height of the tree shelter belt. And when you've got these large paddocks that some farmers are now operating or feel they need to have, uh, you know, they can be two or three kilometres long. So a tree shelter bell's never gonna, never gonna do the job. So the aim is to keep, keep your plant residues on the surface. Now, like with everything, that message is a bit simplistic. Like if you've got gravelly soils, with about 50% gravel on the surface, you know, that will control the wind erosion or minimise the risk. Uh, if, if you've got a heavy soil that hasn't been pulverised by grazing or cultivation and if you've got clods that are uh, robust clods that when you get them between your thumb and your forefinger, you can't break them, 
they, you know, if they're two or three centimetres in diameter or more, you know, that, that will control erosion. But, you know, the first, first cut is try and keep your plant residues on the surface. Thank you. So stubble retention is important if we can. And we do have a lot of research and resources from past and current research. Where to next, Bindi? Where to next? I think that's a good question. I think it's um, a matter of now looking at our current farming system and trying to rebuild these elements into it to manage that erosion risk. Um, and I guess when you're looking at um, soil amelioration and particularly soil inversion, it is a recommendation that you wait until the soil is moist before you actually invert the soil. And this is so that you can actually seed straight back into it and establish a crop and, and ground cover early on. And also just being mindful if you're towing a roller behind, because often when we invert this soil, it's really soft and becomes a bit, um, can be hard to control the seedbed depth for seeding and even trackability. So they do tow a weighted roller behind it. So it's also just being mindful about um, in when you're deep ripping in summer, perhaps you don't tow the roller and you might put the roller in just before you seed when it's moist. But the main thing is really to try and, especially with spading and moldboarding, to do it when the, the soil is moist and even perhaps in the fallow. So there are opportunities in some of our farming systems where we do have a fallow, a chemical fallow, and that can be a really good time actually to do soil amelioration and um, because the soil is moist and it gives the soil time to settle before going into the next season. And look, farmers do really are really mindful of erosion and I do know of farms that actually haven't done spading and things this year because we've had that really late start and haven't had the rain, so they've opted not to do that. And they have been very mindful about um, minimising that risk and reducing um, the amount of time that the soil is exposed. So you know, they, they are aware of it. And I think it's just, um, yes, incorporating some of these practices and things back in and, and making sure that we, these kind of renovations are a one-off strategic renovation, that they're certainly not um, ones we'd go ahead and do like every year over large areas there um, to, to renovate that soil and then move back into that um, minimum till strategy that we know really works well and helps maintain our good uh, stubble cover levels. One thing some growers have been doing is uh, doing some of these soil inversion uh, practices early on in the year, like December, January, February, and the soils can be left exposed for several months before a crop. Uh, they've got a chance to get crop emergence and established ground cover. So. Deeper, or we have always recommended that it be done later in the season, uh, as Bindi was saying, when the soil is moist, to minimise the risk of wind erosion and maximise the uh, that time gap between when you establish some ground cover and uh, when the soil's most vulnerable. So, because there are clear benefits to doing these practices. Bindi, where can growers go to get some more information? So the best place to go is actually to our website, which is www.agric.wa.gov.au and you'll find in our climate, land and water page, there's a whole section on wind erosion um, and there's also um, lots of other information that you can get on managing other soil constraints uh, in WA as well. And Paul, as we conclude this podcast, what parting message would you like to share with growers and consultants regarding this subject? The 
the main thing I would like to get across is that people should try to reduce the period that their soils are left exposed, so not to c carry out soil renovation practices early in the season, but to leave it until they've got some rain and they've got a good chance of getting good crop establishment after it. And then over the summer months after harvest, maintain 50% ground cover is the rule of thumb if it's uh, been all knocked over through grazing and if it's standing up, uh, you can get by with about 20 or 30% ground cover and that will be quite effective in controlling wind erosion up, up the speeds of up to 90-odd kilometres an hour. And how about you, Bindi? Do you have a parting message? I think Paul summed it up very well. He's been the master, I guess, that's been around um, researching wind erosion for a long time. And, you know, I think that's really an important message is that it's it's not a new thing. Wind erosion has been around and it's been actively managed by researchers with the department and, and growers in WA um, for many, many years. So it's important that we are mindful of managing wind erosion and incorporating continuing these strategies into our farming systems as we evolve and are adopting new technologies to improve the profitability of WA farming. Paul and Bindi, thank you both very much for coming on the podcast and highlighting the importance of wind erosion and the vast deep head research that has been and still is being done in combating this issue. You're welcome. Yes, thanks very much for having us, Cindy. More information on this topic can be found in the show notes. If you like this episode, you can download and subscribe to Grains Convo on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We'll be back on the 1st and 15th of every month with a new episode. Thanks for listening. <laughs>